don't need to sync up any audio. You're right in front of me. Oh my god. This is so weird. This is so weird. Alrighty. Um. Cue intro! It is a truth universally acknowledged that a brilliant idea, conceived and executed by a clever young woman, must be claimed by a man. Welcome to Pride, Prejudice, and Podcasts. Today, <laughs> we are covering a different adaptation, as you can tell. It is called Pride and Premeditation by Tears of Price. Tears of Price? By T- Tears I- of Price. Yeah, by Tears of Price. I awesome. Think. I hope I did not butcher that. If I did and she's ever listening, I'm so sorry. <laughs> and that was how the book opened, so I thought it was appropriate for this particular Very episode. Fair. But hey, before we actually talk about our episode, should we talk about some updates with the podcast? Oh yes, you want to cover that? <laughs> Basically, you might have noticed we haven't recorded it in a while. We were taking a little break, a lot of life stuff. I graduated. Kaylee's moved in with me again. Hey. Hi. I'm... I got a roommate again. Hey. hey. You can't tell, but we're doing finger guns at each other. This is very important information for you to know. So, back to what we were <laughs> saying. We are back and better than ever. We want to re-record a bunch of old episodes to make them listenable. So we now have appropriate microphones and editing software and the know-how. So we're going to re-record... With it's going to be essentially all new content ascent, aside from the topic. Yeah, so um, we'll be keeping the things we're going to re-record, like the book, uh, 2005, 1940s, 1996, 96, 95, whatever. 96, who knows? Um, we are not even sure what episodes we've done, don't worry. So technically, like, official, I guess last time was season zero, so now we're, like, season one of we're, the podcast. We're official season one, so as we re-record them, we're going to re-release them and delete the ones that we did prior so hopefully they're a little more listenable a little more condensed a little more organized and better and better (laughs) so So we will see that's our little update little update and we'll remind you at the end of the podcast too fun yeah let's get into this so i read this over the course of two days i read this in the course of three hours Uh, this is why i read the books first (laughs) So what I wanted to start with, first and foremost, was actually the author's note at the end of the book, because I think it definitely adds to our discussion, as well as helps us avoid repeating something like Mm -hmm. inaccuracies or not judging it harshly, but judging it like we would something. A historical fiction. Like a historical fiction. Like a true one. So, Ari's going to take over because yeah. she loves doing her quotes. hey I was told not to collect quotes. Yes, but... we were not collecting <laughs> quotes this time. Okay, so for the author's note, readers with a passing interest in Regency-era England will recognize that I've taken a few liberties with what was and wasn't considered proper in this novel. While I try to stay true to the etiquette and customs of the early 19th century, Lizzie's ambitions to become a barrister or even a solicitor would have been out of reach in 1813, the year that Pride and Prejudice was first published. Nonetheless, I set out to write Pride and Premeditation. I didn't want Lizzie to be controlled by the limitations of her error or stifled by the drawing room etiquette. While most of the historical inaccuracies are intentional, some may be unintentional, in which case those mistakes are completely my own. So she has changed the story and she's definitely um, not fully in line with all the historical accuracies. Which I appreciate considering how much she's kind of bending the world to fit what role she wants Elizabeth to be able to play in this Agatha Christie-esque murder mystery. Yeah. So basically this is a murder mystery novel. It is very different than original Pride and Prejudice. Mm -hmm. So it's not really intended to be a full-on historical novel that follows everything to do with the era. It's like a fun novel, basically. 
if I were to liken it to a movie that's recently come out, Enola Holmes would be a yes. nice. Okay, is a is a very similar. You take a character you're familiar with, you change it, make it a little more modern, mm-hmm. and have a female lead, and then you, while you nod to historical events yeah. and traditions and customs, you can also kind of bend them and tweak them to make both your main character a little more interesting as well as fit that role a little better and mm-hmm. a little more comfortably so it seems more natural. Like this this book sees a lot of adversity for Elizabeth because she is seems to be this like first kind of woman who wants to go into a lawyer type job. Barristers are lawyers. Mm-hmm. And so without those barriers necessarily of like what is acceptable for women, she's able to fill this role and make this commentary on the society as it was. Yeah. And then when you notice historical inaccuracies, you're like, oh, that's because X, Y, or Z wasn't possible at that time. Yes, exactly. So So I know when both of us were reading, we're like, what is, when this is set in, they're mentioning gloves and Spencer's, like the little jackets, but they also mentioned like going out to lunch with your male colleague with no chaperones or anything like that. Yeah. And that's what I thought was interesting. And of course the book does mention multiple times that it's a little bit scandalous for Elizabeth to be out on her own without a chaperone, but it's not... Her mother doesn't come in insisting that she needs a chaperone. It's not super strict on those customs because Mm -hmm. that is not the point of the novel. Exactly. And And I appreciate that, honestly. Not having to sort through a dense, quote-unquote, historical text. or I histo- like that, though. <laughs> I know you do, but I don't. I, I like to enjoy my novels for what they have been written for, so mm-hmm. to speak. Yeah. Um, we should give just a brief overview of the plot, because, like, we have mentioned it is a murder mystery, but, like, what is this book about? Just generally, no spoiler. There will be no spoilers here. Yes, we will not be spoiling <laughs> the ending, the murderer... Uh, any accomplices. But basic overview, what is this book about? Um, so the plot is Lizzie works for her father. Her father is a barrister, I believe. And in this version, Collins is a solicitor. So a solicitor, from what I understand from the book, is the person who goes out and meets with people who are looking to get a lawyer and convinces them that your law firm the law firm that you work for is the best one for the job and that they have, you know, the ability to support you in court or what have you. So Elizabeth is in the role of helping her father with paperwork, not necessarily as a secretary job, like Charlotte is uh, currently playing or in the role of. Um, So she's more like going out and talking to people or delivering messages or organizing papers or reading through contracts is another thing that she's very into because her father is the barrister but like he has like legal yeah legal paperwork as his background kind of thing and so it opens up with collins regaling this tale of how he found all this information and how he knows or how he found out that this one woman was actually um cheating on her husband. cheating on her husband with the husband's like boss or something yeah. and was trying to get the husband to fall for murder or embezzlement or something like that it was yeah and then it's revealed to us that elizabeth is actually the one who did all the legwork and in an effort to prove a point to collins actually revealed all this information so then he takes the credit her father is well aware that she is the one who dug it up however it's also that elizabeth is working behind the scenes she's not like in any actual official capacity working for her father because women can't be barristers they can't be solicitors nope 
1813. <laughs> Supposedly. Um, and, but her fa- and her father is hesitant to train her because of those, yes. that social kind of line. And so at some point, uh, Lizzie is talking with her father and he goes, okay, well, I need you to show me that you are capable of doing this job and then I can train you to become a solicitor. And Elizabeth says, okay, and so she starts going through files, and then she hears gossip that Bingley is in jail for the murder of his brother-in-law, Hurst. Now, if we remember anything from (laughs) the original text, that is his sister Louisa's husband. So Mm -hmm. Louisa Hurst, formerly Louisa Bingley. Mm -hmm. Uh, So Caroline's sister, Bingley's sister. Yes. Yeah. That. So... (laughs) He has been murdered, and immediately the suspect is Bingley because he was found He discovered the body. He discovered the body, then had blood on his clothes and a knife in his hand. And so basically the story is Elizabeth kind of worming her way into that story and helping Bingley as, like, an unofficial solicitor Mm -hmm. um, to basically clear him of murder. Yeah, I would say she's less of a solicitor and more of, like... Detective. Detective or private eye. Yeah. Um, definitely Private Eye strikes me more as detective because she's not necessarily doing, like, clue work. She's doing social questioning, Mm -hmm. and that's from what I understand. She's gaining evidence. Yeah, so from what I understand from my experience as a private eye and having family who's a private eye. Oh. uh, It's mostly that social work and then talking with legal counsels and making sure that these facts are, will actually stand up in court. It's not just circumstantial evidence. Mm -hmm. So... In that respect, that's her role for Bingley. There's a little drama about how she gets this quote-unquote position or job from him, uh, but that one's just a fun little tidbit that I think yeah. everyone should leave read. It up, leave it up to leave them. Leave it them. Um, and then that major thing with those roles is where Darcy comes in, we'll just say that quickly. So he does work at another like law, for- law, law firm, firm, which is Pemberley, which is run by his father, Mr. Darcy. So Who's alive in this The version. elder Mr. Darcy is alive. We don't see him, but he's alive. Mm-hmm. Um, he's and mentioned. so Mr. Dar- Mr. Darcy, our Darcy, uh, works for this firm and is representing Bingley because they are friends. And mm-hmm. then Elizabeth's like, hey, Bingley, what if I want to represent you? And so that is kind of where that interaction takes place and why there is this rivalry rivalry between Darcy and Elizabeth because they're both trying to, like, vie for Bingley's case. Exactly. Um, and so that is kind of, like, the main conflict here in the and story. I think one of the more interesting tidbits, and it's revealed later, but it's kind of, like, in the beginning. It's kind of mentioned in the beginning, too, but Darcy does not immediately have that great position of power that he does in the book where he is the sole inheritor of the state aside from Gigi and um her, his father has since died he has no other family except you know Catherine and so in this in this version which I really like is that he's working for that position yeah. so he's started at the bottom now he's here <laughs> <laughs> sorry uh yeah he started at the bottom per his father's not request but like it's his father's rule that he yeah. works to gain his he needs to like prove himself he needs to prove himself just like every other person in the law firm which i think is really nice and definitely i think adds to his character a Mm -hmm. little bit because like in the book it takes a while for elizabeth to realize that oh no darcy's a good person he doesn't figure she doesn't figure this out until she visits pemberley herself and talks with the staff but here she learns eventually but he's pretty transparent about it that he's working for his position um, and so that you see kind of 
fairly soon that he is a hard worker and he does care about things. It doesn't seem like that because this is very much from Lizzie's point of view, but yeah, so that's kind of a nice thing. It's yeah. like he's not an ass the entire time. He's an ass because he tries to he doesn't brush Lizzie off necessarily, but he's just like, no, this is this is for professionals. This is for men. This is for men. Yeah, but, but then- that that's that overview of the plot and basically the direction that this story leads. And so it is like it's that murder mystery feel. Mm-hmm. It is like it's fun. It's a I'll fun little murder. I very much enjoyed fun little murder. A fun little murder. <laughs> I very much enjoyed the twists and turns it brought. I have a lovely list of things we're going to talk about. We've talked about the author's note. Mm-hmm. We've sort of gotten into characterizations, um, but I you really want to talk about the ages because that was the first thing <sighs> that Ari brought up when she told me about the book. In and the inside cover, when it tells you the summary, it starts off 17-year-old, actually this one says 16-year-old, but she is 17, 17-year-old Lizzie Bennet, and I go, excuse me? Yeah, allow me to read the synopsis that made Ari so angry. When a scandalous murder shocks London high society, 17-year-old law enthusiast Lizzie Bennet sees the perfect opportunity to prove herself as a formidable, formidable litigator. She's 17. And so part of me is like, why? Like, are you going to age down every character? Is this going to take place like a high school thing? So it kind of makes sense why she can't reach that lawyer position because she's a high schooler. Yeah, before we realized that it was historical. I read the summary and I thought this was a modern day adaptation. Mm -hmm. Honestly, that's where I was. And so I was kind of concerned about ages and I still am concerned about ages. But it's appropriate for 1913. 1813. 1813. This is not Edwardian. This is not Edwardian. You're right. 1813. So... Everyone is aged down. Collins is twenty one. I assume Darcy's around. It's okay. 22? So so here's here's what I understand. Mm-hmm. So Lizzie is seventeen. Collins is early twenties, so twenty or twenty one. Bingley is roughly twenty four. Bing uh, Darcy is a year younger at probably about twenty three. Wickham is also at that twenty three twenty four age. I think he's older than Darcy, so I think he's mm-hmm. actually twenty four. Catherine is in her forties. Lady Catherine yeah. is in her 40s. Um, Charlotte is at 26, I believe. I want to say 23. No, she's old. She's not 26. You sure? Because she's 27 in the original book, dear. Oh, okay. So, so then she might be 23 or 24. Everybody else is, like, appropriate for... the same ages. So, yeah. like, uh, Gigi, Georgiana. She's called it, Georgie in this book. It's Georgie so is... Oh, yeah. Georgie is close to Lizzie's age. She's yeah, about 16, that, 17. Uh, which, the thing I have to say about that is it kind of makes Darcy's, I know, you know what this is about Darcy's line of Wickham got to Georgiana when two years ago when she was 15. And then it's kind of like, I don't, it puts a weird dynamic in my brain about how Darcy acts like a father figure to Georgiana and yet she's the same age as Elizabeth in this novel in which he's pursuing Elizabeth. Mm-hmm. And so it's kind of weird to me in that yeah. light. That... But, like, you actually think about it, because that's not described. Mm-hmm. But I'm just like, interesting changes made here. Mm-hmm. I don't really see him as the father figure yeah, in this. That is and fair. It's, and it's because the father is still alive. Mm-hmm. I think they have a more solid brother-sister as opposed to father figure, older brother, sister. Yeah. Because the father is still alive and prominent and having an influence on their lives. I think without that, the larger age gap works, but having 
them be like, yes, we still have our dad. Yes, we're working for X, Y, or Z. Mm-hmm. It works better, almost. Um, and then it also, like, yeah, it's a little weird that Lizzie is about the same age as his younger sister. But at the same time, that tends to be sometimes what happens in real life. Yeah. Like, you usually... I mean, that's fair. I just yeah. find it weird knowing no. what their dynamic usually is. Yeah. But, the again, the dynamic has changed, so it but makes like, sense. also, in that regard to ages, there's no reason for them to be aged down that I could find. Like, the one thing I did try looking it up is the one thing people were saying, like, reviews to the book of maybe it's so it fits that young adult age gap no. and that like, young adult, so it's qualified as a young adult book. But, mm-hmm. like... There is no reason why they're aged down. I cannot see a single reason in the plot why they have to be younger. I wonder if it's due to... So, clearly they have to go to college to become solicitors, or they have to go get schooling, right? Yes. So, Darcy has his schooling as a solicitor, which means he's probably reached that 17, 18-year-old thing. You figure two years of school, roughly, that brings him to 20... And then practicing and working his way up the company is another two to three years. Mm -hmm. So he's gone through his schooling, but Lizzie hasn't because A, she's a woman, B, her father doesn't want her to do that, and C, she is canonically younger than Darcy by several years. So you want that age gap to kind of stay consistent, I think, because I think that's a big part about their relationship and kind of their attitudes towards each other because again the whole Darcy's the very prideful but Lizzie has a lot of prejudice he's proud because he might be older and he thinks he knows more she's prejudiced because she does know as much as he does and feels attacked essentially mm-hmm. by his unacknowledgement of her her brains or her information or what have you. I totally like that, but I'm always like, if you're already going to include inaccuracies, why not just age them up and be like, well, school doesn't matter. Um, but That's true. <laughs> I love that analysis of like the difference in age regarding that yeah. themes of the novel. Yeah. So I think I think that might be just the easiest way. And then, of course, you scale the other characters around them to fit kind of where they were. Because, like, you figure Wickham, he was also practicing at the same time that Darcy was yeah. and was working him. So he has to be a similar age. Mm-hmm. If he tried to move up faster than Darcy, it would make sense that he's a little bit older. Same thing with Bingley. Bingley is definitely the... He's still the sole inheritor, aside from his sisters kind of thing. So he's also a little bit older because he's having to deal with those things. And it's never really established whether Bingley and Darcy are the same age or if there's an age gap. So you can kind of... Have that flexiness. You're, uh-huh. mi- you're all missing the shoulder wiggle. The I'm shoulder doing. wiggles. There's a shoulder wiggle and like some like jellyfish fingers. It's pretty great. Oh, I guess um, the I wanted to touch on Charlotte definitely. Oh yes, Charlotte. So, I loved Charlotte. In this I book. really loved her. She was um, really good. She had played a more minor role. Yes, definitely. This time, but of course, the book is much shorter than the original text, so there is that. With Charlotte, so she is the secretary for Longborn and Sons, which is the company that Mr. Bennett runs. Um, the fun fact about this author, about what she did with the character, is she made Charlotte biracial. Mm-hmm. So I think it's like her mother's from the West Indies, I Which I think is just India. I believe so. Oh, yeah. yeah. So that is what's mentioned. Her family is dead in this, so she's like the orphan child, mm-hmm. and she's working because she needs to work in order mm-hmm. to like survive, survive, basically. I believe it was mentioned that one of Mr. Bennett's friends had taken her yeah. in because it had happened when she was fairly young. Yeah. So she does have, like, a societal background, essentially, but because of that biracial factor, she's 
And what I really loved about that is, you know, the line that she has in the original book, I don't know the exact one, but where she's like basically going to Lizzie and saying like, don't you dare judge me for accepting Mr. Collins offer because I don't have, like, I am not able to like refuse love or to choose who I want to marry and all of that. And in this novel, it's really like she does call Lizzie out still, Mm -hmm. but it's also because like you are not in my position as like this woman of color, like you don't have the same like, view on life as me. You don't have the same opportunities as me. It's really hard for me to advance or to do anything. And it's and it's um, also, Lizzie has more opportunities Yes, exactly. It's, Charlotte's opportunities are very much limited, both because she's a woman and because she's a woman of color. Mm-hmm. It's that whole intersectionality thing we <laughs> learned in college, where you have these multiple factors that can contribute to either your societal status or economic status. And so I do feel like that's a really interesting facet of personality, and also makes me more excited to read another adaptation called Pride, mm. which is both, it is about uh, people of color and characters of color. Mm-hmm. So I'm interested to read that one and see how that kind of influences Ooh. each other. It's been on my to-read list for a while. Yeah. I just haven't picked it up. Okay. But, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, Charlotte, Charlotte is just wonderful. She really does put Lizzie in her place yes. in a lot of instances, and I absolutely adore it. She is very well written, I think, and she's just, I just like her a lot. Like, she's got a good head on her shoulders. She's fun. And she's fun. And her interactions with Collins are very interesting, I think. Yeah, definitely. I think, is Collins our next? Collins can be our next. I mean, college and his attitudes. College and his attitudes. Collins and his attitudes is what we have. It is because Collins is a character. We do see him very differently in different adaptations. Mm -hmm. And this one, I do see him kind of like as that stereotypical older man in the office. Like, I don't know what to say. Like, I'm wording that word purely. But he like, he takes other women's ideas. And that's something we've seen in a lot of different stories. What jumped right to my mind is, I don't know if you watched it, Agent Carter, which is that Marvel show about Peggy Carter. Okay. uh, My favorite show ever. No, I never did. Love that show to pieces. I'm so mad it's canceled. But it was basically like, Peggy also is like the woman in the workplace in an office full of men and Mm -hmm. the men take, like, they brush her to the side and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And Collins is that person who, like, takes other people's ideas for his own. Mm -hmm. He's, like, proud in that way. Mm -hmm. He is a very interesting character of he and Elizabeth Baker a lot. And and Lizzie yeah. absolutely loathes this man. Like, we've seen her hate him before, but there is a very prominent, I absolutely hate Mr. Collins in this book, yeah. which I really appreciate it's because fun. he doesn't come across as this, like, oh, small, awkward, religious guy. It's he, different. He's, <laughs> he's very much the... I'm the asshole at the office. I will take your ideas for my own and I will tout them to my friends and colleagues who you cannot stand up against because yeah. X, Y, or Z. So, And I also, that. like that being said, his interactions with Charlotte are very interesting because yes. he and Charlotte seem to get along in a sense. Mm-hmm. They talk to each other like Charlotte doesn't really have that big problem with him. Mm-hmm. For they some ha- reason. They're able to hold intelligible conversations. Oh my goodness. I know. It's weird. But he seems like... Yes, he's an asshole behind the scenes, mm-hmm. but at the same time, he's a decent human being. Yeah. In, you know, in, in conversation and in the workplace and what have you. So it it's really interesting to see. Always those changes in Collins from that awkward man to super religious to, like, full of himself to, like, this, which is asshole in the office. Yeah. But we get all these different versions of who Collins is as a person. Oh, we can do Hearst as the victim. Kind of moving off from Collins as 
a, an interesting take on a character. This book does an interesting thing where it takes a character who's very not very focused on in the book at all and just kills he him. He just plays cards and drinks in the re- play, regular yeah, book. Yeah, in the regular book. And then you kind of see that in some of the film adaptations yeah. where he's an alcoholic and he's plays cards and you can kind of see the where the author here took like snippets of that and gave him that debt problem and the drinking problem and the abuse problem kind of thing um so hurst is our victim he's dead at the start um it's a good choice of characters because it's not someone you care about a lot but it is someone like if you know pride and prejudice you recognize the name Mm -hmm. and so it's like okay there's that connection to Bingley there. There's a but. lovely connection to Bingley. And I think that's why it's one of those smarter, like, who do you kill? Because you could just kill a random passerby yeah. that's mentioned. You could kill one of the ladies from town. You, you could, could kill, do... like, a lady in waiting. Exactly. But, like, having it be a not a main character, but a named character it, in the novel. Both a named character and a character who is connected to one of the main, yes. main four. Like, Lizzie, Darcy... Bingley and Jane. Those Mm -hmm. are like the main four. So you've got someone who holds little to no position and little to no story value, let's say, in the original text. And you take him and you make him very important because he is the one who has died. He is the one Bingley will hang for murder if... Yeah. Or if, no, if we can't figure out who actually did it, yeah, yada, yada, yada. Gets <laughs> so it's just one of those things where it's just like, you make this insignificant, so to speak, character very important. very important. And you build that backstory for him and you have to figure out, okay, who is he actually in this universe? And it's also really interesting because then you hear, because he's the husband of Bingley's other sister, we don't hear a lot about Caroline in this. We see, hear a couple little tidbits, a couple little bits of gossip, especially during a ballroom scene. But we don't hear a lot about Louisa. And this book really kind of focuses on her and her relationship with her ex or her now deceased <laughs> husband, as well as that with her sister and her yes. brother. And that's really interesting because you don't see that in any of these other adaptations. Mm-hmm. You see how she's tired of her husband with the drinking and the gambling or whatever in some of the movies. But again, she's a side character. It's usually in reaction to Caroline yeah. or Caroline is reacting and then Louisa catches on and also does it. So she gets her own kind of autonomy, I would say. Okay. Like she gets that that little piece of the storyline to herself. Yes. She doesn't rely necessarily on someone else. Yes, she's like Caroline seems very suspicious or what have you. Mm. <laughs> but at the same time, she very much holds that that one piece of the story, this one key to the mystery to herself. Yeah. And that's what kind of makes this whole thing very interesting because she's withholding information and Lizzie can't get it out of her. And, but Caroline might know, (laughs) but like Bingley might know also. Oh boy. Oh boy. What's going on? Exactly. So it's one of the, it's, it's fun. I like that she gets a piece and she has lines. I mean, we'll come back to Caroline. We have a lovely little subplot for y'all that I wanted. To, we sort of want to touch on, but we don't. Wanna, we don't want to go too far. We don't want to go too far. Yeah. Um. So let's instead switch kind of back to Collins and his esteemed patroness, Lady Catherine de Bourgh. 
<laughs> so Lady Catherine, um, just a little bit of details. They do change her a little bit. We have seen a little touches on like her being a feminist in other versions of Pride and Prejudice of her being like, well, like she has her daughter who's inheriting her estate. She mm-hmm. wants women to like be like practice at instruments and be like the best that they can be. But there's that whole little thing at the end of the what was it the the version set in the 1830s. 1940s. 19, yeah. The 1940s version where she vetted, essentially, yes. Elizabeth for Darcy before saying, yeah, I'm okay with her. Yeah, so, we, so we've seen her as, like, almost this almost feminist. A quasi-feminist. Quasi. I don't I know. Mean, I don't know I if feminist. Wouldn't, I wouldn't call her a feminist. I wouldn't either. But she has she's different a, She's a more modern-minded. Okay. I would say modern-minded. I would say something like that. Because I wouldn't say feminist. Yeah. That is too strong of a word for her. It's absolutely too strong. But like modern-minded, I think kind of, I don't know if that's actually- A focus funny. on just women and their place in society. Yeah. And she, abs- and she does that whole thing where it's just like- you have to recognize your position and you have to use it to your advantage, which mm-hmm. I absolutely love because she's absolutely right. In a, especially with this adaptation, Lizzie is very much limited by, regardless of historical inaccuracies, <laughs> both intentional and unintentional, um, there's a lot Lizzie has to fight against. And so getting that advice from Catherine yeah. when she does is really nice because it kind of strengthens her resolve and pushes her through into the next bit of the story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know what else to say. What do you I got? Know. While I don't really like her characterization in the novel, I would say it is like a breath of fresh air to see Lady Catherine portrayed in that different way. Mm-hmm. We also see a lot... I want to say we see a lot more of her, but it's... Like, quantity-wise... Uh, not super. She plays different parts Overtly, yeah. we don't see her a ton. Behind the scenes, yes. we know she's working. So... In, like, the original Pride and Prejudice, you see her kind of doing both. She's overt when dealing with Elizabeth and subvert when she's dealing with Darcy. Okay. Or, like, you you see her interactions with the main four mm-hmm. more than you see any of her interactions in the background. Here, again, it's that kind of similar thing. She where still you, is pretty overt with Elizabeth. She's overt with yeah. Elizabeth, but then it's, as you kind of move through the story you see the inner workings behind it. So you kind of, you may not know exactly what she said to Darcy or exactly what she said about Wickham or what have you, but you get that there's like, there's between the line text that you kind of, you Mm -hmm. kind of pick up on as you read more about her and her interactions and all of that. Yeah. Let's go, let's go to Caroline and then let's go to Lizzie and Darcy. Okay. Yeah. So Caroline says subplot. It's really interesting, I'll just start off saying, like, Caroline is that woman of high society. We've seen her in, like, every adaptation. She's kind of, like, the snooty sister. She likes her place in society. She's very, like, uptight, wears the latest fashions, is very, like, in with the etiquette. I don't know what I'm saying here. But, like, you know, that is who she is. She takes um, she takes pride in her position. Yes, yeah, she takes pride she... in her position. She only interacts with people of her class mm-hmm. to, like, make sure her position is known to those. She looks down on people of the lower class. Things like that. She doesn't want to jeopardize it necessarily exactly. by mixing, so to speak, with the wrong, so to speak, people. But then in this adaptation, we get this little lovely subplot that we don't want to touch on too much, but, like, a little mention of it. So Elizabeth, during her investigation, finds herself at a, uh, like, a dance. Like, there's many dances in the original. There's not so many in this one, which is nice. Mm -hmm. But, um, and... It's an assembly. It's an assembly. But that's a dance. 
so what she's doing is she's tracking Caroline to see if her story matches up. So she's essentially confirming Caroline's alibi. And as she follows her into this assembly, she learns something very interesting. But apparently, Caroline has a suitor of the lower class. Oh, and he's a ginger. Oh, oh. and they dance together a lot. Oh, oh. and they only Weekly. dance with each other. Oh, <laughs> and so we don't actually get a lot out of this, but it is still that little insight into her character in this novel of she's very different. She's, like, she's in love, quote unquote, with a, someone of a lower class and she does these things. She meets with him in like a lower class assembly instead of trying to like bring him into her world. She goes and meets him in his, his world, which is kind of nice. Yeah. It, it, it's nice to see, like, almost a softer side yeah. to her character, which she definitely has a soft side for her sister and her brother, mm-hmm. and that's kind of apparent through Family all of first. Them. Family first. But here with, I believe his name is Henry. We're just told he has red hair. <laughs> We're just told, I thought his name was Henry. I don't know. I, thought his name, I don't oh, remember. I'm going to call him Henry. Okay. So what we see with her and Henry is just this, oh my gosh, she's mixing classes, but also it strengthens her alibi again, which is the, just the main point about this whole mm-hmm. this whole scene is confirming her alibi. It's and, such an interesting addition but it's to an, have that. Exactly. And it's an interesting way to, you know, confirm her alibi. They're not having, like, her sister be a chaperone and confirming that. They're not having you know, uh, maybe a maid or someone else from the household or Darcy be her alibi. And it's interesting, we actually hear that from, like, older women who Elizabeth talks to at the dance or, like, mm-hmm. the mothers who are off to the side gossiping and they're like, yes, that young uh, that young man and that young woman dance together every, every time Friday, this assembly is here. That. Like, yeah. they always dance with each other and then they leave afterwards. It's like they do two dances or whatever. Sometimes so- Dane's tasks for three. Oh my god! <gasps> So it's really interesting that she's allowing herself to be observed by other people in this situation so much that they actually recognize her coming back and coming back Back. to that. Mm -hmm. It changes our view on who she is, really. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Now, so one of the questions I wrote as we were kind of planning this out, um, is this a good or a bad change? Now, that's kind of like a very black and white way to look at this, but... For the purposes of this story, does it make sense to include this random side character just to the point for confirming an alibi? And does this change that she's Mm -hmm. made in order to do that, how does that affect her character? I want to say it does add to the story's theme of coming, like, because Lizzie is doing something that's not expected of women at this time period. Uh, Caroline's doing something as well as she's not expected to do. The upper class doesn't mingle with that lower class. Mm-hmm. They are very separate entities. And so it is breaking those social norms in that way. And I think that kind of adds to the idea the novel is kind of trying to go through. Mm-hmm. Lizzie, being of a lower social class, she strives for a position that is held by men mm-hmm. and Caroline is abs- is in a high in a high societal position but what she wants is clearly affection of a more truer nature than simply any random suitor that she could have her pick of from her class and so she goes and seeks something quote unquote real yeah <laughs> um not just hey you're hot can i marry you <laughs> so you're hot and have money. You're hot and have money. So I wouldn't say it's like a bad change, but... I think it's appropriate for the adaptation. All right, now... Speaking of children, you want to know who the favorite character in this novel is? Yes, please. Tell me tell me who the favorite character of this novel is. His name is Fred. He's like a young street urchin. He's the best. He is super sneaky. I love him. And he gets information for Lizzie. He's so sweet. 
and I just imagined him with a Cockney accent. <laughs> <laughs> um, I love it. Yeah. That's kind of it. Yeah. It's just there's a character named Fred. He's a child. He he's, lives on the street. He's, he's really nice. one of Lizzie's better informants that she's used on multiple cases, which is really nice to see. She gives him stuff. Don't worry. She pays him. She pays him. Um, And it, again, it provides that social commentary of, okay, what are... What are kids going through who don't have any social class? There is that, um... She t- they that, talk about that. They talk about her wanting to teach him how to read at one point. Mm-hmm. Because she notices he's great at drawing. And so goes, no, it's drawing. He's drawing. Or, yeah, she goes, like, you're really great at drawing. I could teach you sometime. And then she realizes there is this divide between them. Mm-hmm. And her teaching him how to draw, like, he can see that as, like... Or reading. Or to... Read or draw. Read. One of those two. He can draw. And yeah. that's how he gives her information about yeah. locations. He draws where it is. Yeah. But she doesn't know how to read. And so Lizzie realizes that these kids are not used to charity, basically. Yeah. They always expect that if you give them something, you expect something of them. Mm-hmm. So what she realizes, and I think this is a really interesting point, that these children will only accept things if you make it make it feel like they earned it. Yeah. So, like, she always pays Fred for any information up front. She pays him up front and says, hey, can you go do this thing for me and bring back? Um, hey, can you go tell this guy, give him this money, you take this X amount of money. Um, she doesn't just say, oh, I'll pay you at the end. And it's she- that thing, is like, it does say, like, in, like, her subconscious, whatever mm-hmm. the narrator's saying, is that she learned this from Charlotte after Charlotte has that conversation with her, saying, like, you don't understand what it's like being of that lower social class and not having the same opportunities. You can't she, trust people. You can't trust yeah. people. You can't trust that they're going to be, like, mm-hmm. real with you and do things, like, up front. Mm-hmm. And so she remembers this when she has that conversation with Fred and goes, I don't want to push this on him because he's going to think that, like, he owes me for this Mm -hmm. and that he has to give me something in return. Even if I say that I don't want something. There's still that inherent fear that, oh, she's going to call for this favor later Mm -hmm. and it might not be something I want to do. So So that is that, during the story, we do have that underlying social glass theme. Which I love immensely. Yeah. So one of the questions I had basically while reading or after reading this and talking with Ari was Lizzie and Darcy both fit in their respective roles very nicely. But do they fit well as a couple in this? Because, yes, they have to work together in some sort of professional capacity, but there's not a ton of overlap because that because there is no bond between Jane and Bingley. Yes. That's what's missing from this book. That was Jane what I and, wanted to bring up. Yeah, Jane and Bingley are not... A couple yeah. at all. And so that as the social tie, essentially, between Lizzie and Darcy does not exist. And so without that, the one thing that's tying them together is the want of clearing Bigley's name and making sure that the the results of this trial with the murder does not affect his social standing. Because that would be bad for both Bingley and his sisters and his company, etc., etc., so without that Jane Bingley tie, and with the murder being the tie that tweens them, does the relationship that eventually comes out of it stand on its own two feet, essentially? Or is it very much a dire situation kind of relationship? Like, you uh-huh. know, like, yeah. that trope. But the one thing I would say is, I think the biggest thing between them in this is just physical attraction. 
Because there were so many lines of Lizzie just looking at his lips. I'm going to say that. To and be fair, that he's everything else is covered. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. The, but the that, neck, like, covered. The hands, covered. <laughs> the hats, worn. <laughs> the Spencers, buttoned. The legs, covered. No ankles. No ankles. But, like, we don't get those very lovely debates and things because they're always thrown together in a situation because Bingley and Jane and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. We only get a few conversations or correspondences between them Mm -hmm. and so their rivalry while present isn't as built up it's it's less a rivalry of character yeah and And more more rivalry of role yes and information yes and i think that's really interesting because you're not you don't have that kind of emotional slash they do have like no spoilers they do have that scene where they are together for a long period of time mm -hmm. um and that kind of does add to them getting to know each other as people but still i don't think that makes up for like a book's worth Mm -hmm. of pining basically and it's it's also to be fair okay so this book is very short as i said she finished in three hours the whole plot of this book takes place within the course of a week this whole book occurs within a week it's the day bingley is discovered as a prominent suspect and or murderer of Mr. Hurst to the day of his trial um, where evidence is presented and there's a small epilogue. Mm -hmm. So a week, realistically, is not enough time to form that long, extended, debatable bond. In this way, we can see why it's more of a YA novel. Mm -hmm. Because you see that in a lot of, like, YA novels, like, the boy falls in love with the girl really quickly and Mm -hmm. things like that. And maybe the book ends with, like, the first kiss. And so, in that way, it is a YA novel. Mm -hmm. Because in, like, a lot of, like, historical fiction or classics, it is that really drawn-out romance. It's it's the slow burn for me. The good old slow burn. So, so the, obviously, the original text is very much a slower, more developing relationship. It takes place over the course of, like, a year and a half or something. This takes place in the course of a week. So, yeah, so instead of a month and a half, or a month and a half, a year and a half, it's over the course of a week. Um, so it's very much more like... It's like we're watching a movie. It's very much a movie. It's condensed. It's very much condensed. The relationship, but I will say that the movies we've watched still have that indication of the passing of time. Yeah. Whereas this book is yeah, is very also very aware of how much time is left. There's two days left for the trial. There's three left. Or there's, you know, a week left. So in that regard, like, having the, their rivalry built up isn't really, like, an option, I guess, in this. Is they do start off as, like, rivals, and then it's very quickly, it's a speed run, enemies to friends to lovers. <laughs> well, in the book, I will say that the rival, uh, rivalry is based on character, like I said. Yes. And this is based on plot. So, plot. It's, yeah, it's based so, on well, jobs. Sorry. So, first it was a battle of wits. Now it's a battle of information. Here, the conflict is is the same. It's about, it's a, instead of a conflict of personality, it's a conflict of society. Mm-hmm. It's more, it's again, once again, it's once again, that theme that we keep seeing in this one of society and how society expectations and societal expectations and societal roles yeah we run into that again so darcy is very much that societal role of the men are working um traditionally men are the ones in charge i'm having a hard time letting go of that 
in order to work with you as opposed to against you. Mm-hmm. And over the course of the week, he begins to appreciate just the kind of information that Elizabeth is able to bring that he is not able to get because she can go into these domestic spaces and people don't suspect women to be in these roles which is why she's able to get that information because they don't see a woman and go she's trying to get me to talk and about this murder they see women go okay she's just not gonna say she wants some gossip yeah it's gossip time it's It's, uh mrs bennett time it's mrs bennett time I love that Mrs. Bennet actually plays a pretty decent role and she's smart in this book. Yeah. There's there's some fun little tidbits of Miss Bennet figuring things out as the story plot goes along and Elizabeth is very vexed by this and I love those moments. I mean... I think that's all I've got That's like that. the segue into what I really want to talk about is, did this book need to be a Pride and Prejudice adaptation or could oh, it be original yes, characters? Because yes. I have a very strong stance of it could have been original characters and Pride and Prejudice doesn't add too much. Right. Yeah. So why don't you why don't you take the mic? Honestly, my stance in this is like you obviously do not need to hit all the story beats of Pride and Prejudice, but we are missing like a lot from this. Mm-hmm. Like the biggest thing is Jane and Bingley don't have these interactions and they're kind of like the central thing that kind of brings a plot together in the original book. We like, you don't have to hit everything. You don't have to hit, like, Darcy's letters. You don't have to hit, like, Lydia and Wickham and going to Pemberley. Going to Pemberley is a big one that I say you need in every adaptation. Otherwise, I will be upset. Just um, go to Pemberley, though. Technically, yes. But in saying that, this book doesn't hit basically any. It hits one or two of those plot points, but I don't see it strongly resembling Pride and Prejudice. I totally feel that we could see other characters in these roles and you don't need it to be Elizabeth Elizabeth Bennett, Fitzwilliam, Darcy. It could just be Jane Doe, John, what's his face? John Doe? John Doe, yeah. It could just be these different characters that you built up in the same way. Having the Pride and Prejudice characters there does not add to the story. It does add this, like, layer of, if you are familiar with it, you can kind of see where they're going with certain characters. You know when Wickham's introduced what kind of role he might be playing. You know who Mr. Collins is as that character. But it reads a little bit more like a fan fiction in a way, of that in fanfic you can take... Um, pre-established characters and just throw them into whatever plot. You can have, like, a Beauty and the Beast AU or something like that. And I see, like, this is where it falls in. Like, obviously it is a a piece of published fiction, but it does not have to be Pride and Prejudice focused because they do make the characters their own. Like, this author does do that. She doesn't stick to, like, um, the exact characterizations in the book, which, like, people can like that, but I have that stance of it does not need to be Pride and Prejudice. Mm -hmm. Where I'm coming from when I read this book is I absolutely do see where you're coming from with the fan fiction and that's where I kind of like it. Yeah. That's I mean, I'm not, no, no, fan no, fiction's no, no. fantastic and I yeah. love it to my, with all my heart. Honestly, um, people who publish their shit for free and it's like three times longer than any Harry Potter book are gods and you cannot take this uh, idea away from me. Yeah. But <laughs> I like it for it having, using these characters And the way that she uses these characters is very interesting to me because we're all familiar with, like, the plot at this point. You've listened to our podcast, how poorly it started, and it's going to get better, we promise. But, (laughs) uh, so, but we've seen how 
everyone reprises these roles and it's always expected that Wickham is going to do this or mm-hmm. something like this. It's always expected that Collins is going to be act in this way and Elizabeth and Darcy are going to be pitted against each other and Jane and Bingley are going to be falling in love. This one does a really interesting thing, I think, where it answers the question of what would have happened if Jane and Bingley were not the center? It makes me cry. It makes me <laughs> That's cry. what happens is I get really sad because I love Bingley with all my heart. Oh yeah, he's a good he's a good boy. But instead of focusing and having the main conflict be having Elizabeth worry about her sister and her sister's love life and the continuation of her family and their their economic status. Mm-hmm. You instead are able to focus on all of this societal commentary that we've been seeing throughout this entire book. You don't have to focus... Yes, you can focus somewhat on, like, what Jane and Bingley mean for the rest of the Bennet family. Mm -hmm. Jane marrying well means their sisters are put in a better position to also find men that can then take care of them should something happen and it should Collins inherit. Mm Mm-hmm. Here we see, like, again, that social commentary, but also taking that aspect of having to necessarily... You, there's there's still that worry about, you know, five daughters. What do you do with them? <laughs> five daughters, but you barely see three of them. Right. <laughs> uh, that kind of thing. But, it's, but with that taken away, you're able to focus on okay. this, this more underlying stuff that doesn't get really touched on. Um... And then, and also using these characters and then subverting their original roles, essentially. I think that I'm using that word correctly. I might not be. <laughs> <laughs> but you expect, if you've read Pride and Prejudice, you know their roles. You expect them to do this, X, Y, or Z. This takes those away, essentially, strips them of that. You're still left with the basic headstrong girl and the prideful man, but then you add an interest, an interesting element where there are consequences to their actions. It's not just society, what they think of you. It's actual legal consequences. Bingley's life is on the line. There, there are people who, if they speak to you, there could potentially something happen to them. If they reveal this piece of information to you too soon, in case of, like, the Bingleys, that could throw off the whole investigation because you have far too much information being thrown at you at once that you're not entirely certain how to put it and how to figure out, okay, this this information is important, this isn't. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, yeah, it does read like fan fiction, but it also leaves the room for that commentary yeah. that I think this author is absolutely making. Yeah, I, I can love. totally see, like, I understand why it is Pride and Precious. I don't think it, I just don't think it has to be. It doesn't have to be, it absolutely like, doesn't. if the characters were changed and their names were changed, it's a new novel. These, mm-hmm. This is an original novel. I mm-hmm. could totally understand that. Mm-hmm. I'd say, like, some characterizations definitely have to be changed. Yeah. But a lot of them were. They These are different characters than you see in the original Pride and Prejudice. Which I like. So don't go I... into this novel going, this is what this character is, that's what this character is. No, absolutely not. Although I will say, eventually, Jane and Bingley are introduced. Yes. But this is after... I want more! <laughs> <laughs> but this is after Darcy and Elizabeth get together, as opposed to... The opposite, which mm-hmm. is true in all other ad- adaptations, where Jane and Bingley are together first, and then Darcy. So I would love a sequel. I think a sequel is a totally possible option for this. Whereas in the original, there isn't really... Like, yes, you could get into Darcy and Elizabeth's love life, but fanfiction does that beautifully. Here, 
I guess it is like you, a build up to that. It's it's the build up to what we're expecting. I which do is Jane know that in the uh, Barnes and Noble edition of this, there is an epilogue chapter uh-huh. that does like tease a possibility of a sequel. Oh, I just don't know what that chapter is. I don't know what that chapter is. Yeah. Okay. So that's interesting, but I and I like that because. Yes, we focus on Jane and Bingley, and they're and so in love, and blah, 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 blah. But Elizabeth no longer has to worry, necessarily. But I want that. my Jane and Bingley. I know you like Jane. But, like, what if I like Jane and Bingley? Then you read the original and watch all other versions. Okay, I'll go read Prime Precious. I've got Go copy. watch Rosamund Pike. Okay. In her lovely, lovely role. Okay. I'll go fall in love with her again. Anyway. That's all, I mean... Kind of just summing up, like, even with, like, that criticism I just placed there, this is a really fun book. I did really enjoy reading it, and I do think it's a good book. Like, all I, that being said. All I, that said, yeah. Those three hours were not wasted. No, absolutely <laughs> not. I very much liked it. So basically, our big takeaways from this novel. Uh, Fred is the best. This is a really fun book to read. It, it's not too long. I highly recommend it. It is a good read. We did really love it. Um, and it does have a lot of really great social commentaries and a lot of great characterizations of these characters that you've seen time and time again. Um, and they are different, but it's not a bad different, we would say. And, uh, I would also say that because, or rather in spite of what you can read into it in regards to those social commentary, like obviously we've read through this book and we've talked through it and we've found these tidbits that we've realized, oh, this is some really nice, you know, commentary on the roles of women, the roles of children, how society and economic status can determine your roles, um, and also how gender can determine your roles. The way it is written into this book and the way that it's presented within this book does not feel like a lecture. Okay, yeah. Totally see it. It's not a, like, this is absolutely a social commentary. This is what I'm trying to drive home. That's not what this book is about. This book is literally about a murder. But at the same time, the details that the author includes and how she does strive for some historical accuracies, some, but then she also takes liberties with it to benefit these characters. But that being said, she's not, like, including dragons. And a lot of the social customs aside, social structures are still very much accurate Mm -hmm. so what those characters do within those social structures is different but the fact that those still exist are present and affect the characters is what makes this kind of makes that conversation within the book exist seem natural but also mm, i lost it you were going somewhere i was going somewhere the commentary the use of social structures and all of that is not overt in this book. It's very much the murder mystery. It's but the way the murder is solved and the choices that Elizabeth makes and the consequences of those choices. It's all informed. It's all very yeah. much informed. It's all yes, it could happen in real life. Very specific things would need to happen for it, but technically it could happen. Yeah. I totally see what you're saying. Yeah. They're informed by the, like, social statuses of everybody, and, like, all of that just played that big role. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so that was, like, our little commentary on Pride and Premeditation by Tears of Price. Highly recommend going and giving it a read. Absolutely. Get it from your local library. Buy it on Amazon. Don't buy it on Amazon. Don't buy it on Amazon. No, go to- Go to a local bookshop. Yep. Ignore all of that. Let's try that again. (laughs)
And then to remind everybody before we finish our episode, we will be re-recording old episodes. Um, I'm thinking our schedule, don't know when releases will take place yet, mm-hmm. but we probably will be doing like a re-record and then new content and then a re-record. So if you have, hi Momo, we have a cat again. Thank you for joining for the announcements. So if you have already listened to the old episodes, just know we will have new content as well. Mm-hmm. And those new episodes will be truly like same bat time, same bat channel, different frequency. <laughs> Anyway, can we uh, end in this with some Momo purring? Hey, Momo, you want to purr? He's not really purring yet. Yeah, he is. I can hear it. If you want to hear from us anymore, you can totally follow us at AustinPod on Twitter or Instagram. I'm a little bit more active on Twitter, even though I still don't post a lot. I will get on that. But you can totally keep up with us there. If you have any suggestions for further adaptations for us to cover, whether they're books, movies, shows, what other other media you can find. Books, movies, shows, other podcasts. We'd love to review other podcasts if there's dramatic readings. Um, Um, You can totally message us either on Twitter or Instagram. I believe our DMs are open. They should be. Yeah. And absolutely send us any questions or your thoughts on these books. If you've read it before, we'd love to hear what you thought of the book. Okay, bye everyone! Bye! And don't commit murder.